All right, well, good morning again, and uh, Happy New Year. It's a, a blessing to be here with you guys uh, in 2018, and uh, for those of you who uh, have been here, you know that, that just like in 2017, we are not done yet, all right? We are not done. So it hasn't changed. The year's changed. The mission has not changed. And we are not done. Now, again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will, and I'm the pastor here at Tri-Village Church, and uh, it's a blessing to be with you again this morning. Um, Now, I want you to know that I'm excited about this morning because we are starting a brand new series uh, entitled Living Hope. And what we're going to be doing in this series is we are going to be walking and going verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter the book of 1 Peter. So if you don't know where 1 Peter is, I want you to turn to the, 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 all the way to the end of your Bible, start at the end, and then go left, okay? Go a few books left, and you will run into 1 Peter. And this morning, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, okay? And here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, what we're going to do is we are going to be addressing the subject of identity, We're going to be discussing the subject of identity. And what I want to do is I want to look at identity under two headings, under two headings. We are going to ask and answer two questions concerning our identity. The first question that we are going to ask and answer is, what is our identity? According to Peter, what is our identity? It's the first question we're going to ask and answer. And then the second question that we're going to ask and answer is a very practical one, very simple one. Why does it matter? You know, so often we ask so many questions and messages, but I think that's the most important question, right? So what does it say and why does it matter? So it's a very simple message in, in the fact that, at least the, let me put this, the outline is very simple. The sermon will not be simple, okay? You guys are going to have to put your thinking caps on for this one, but the outline is very simple. What is our identity and why does it matter, okay? So let's begin with the first question. The first question that we're answering this morning is, what is our identity? And to answer that, let me read the first part of verse 1. Look what Peter says. He says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter begins by using two phrases to describe us. So in our desire to answer that first question, what is our identity, we have to look at what Peter says. And according to Peter, there are two words that he uses to describe us, and they both start with the letter E. He calls us God's elect, and then he calls us God's exiles. God's elect and God's exiles. Now, here's the thing about, here's why I appreciate what Peter does here. Because Peter uses, by describing us as God's elect and God's exiles, he uses two very important identities, but two identities that are actually very, neglect, very neglected in the Christian world. Like, you don't really hear sermons about being God's elect. You don't really hear a lot of sermons about being exiles, okay? So he takes these two very important identities that are actually very neglected. And I think that part of the reason why they're so neglected, part of the reason why you don't hear series on being God's elect and series on being exiles is because neither of those, both of those identities are very controversial for their own reasons, right? But according to Peter, if you are a Christian, if you are someone, this, someone here this morning who has placed their faith in Jesus, you are God's elect and you are also God's exiles. Now, in the NIV, there is a comma between elect and exile, so it seems like they're separate, but actually in the Greek, the two words are, are right next to each other. And actually, the word elect 
is meant in the Greek to modify the word exile. Now, the reason why that's so important is because nowhere else in the Bible are these two words together. It's the only place in all of Scripture, Old or New Testament, that elect and exile are put in the same place. So close, in fact, that one modifies the other, okay? So what I want to do for the first part of this message is I want to answer the question, what is our identity? And I want to answer that question by looking at each one of these identities separately, okay? So the first one we're going to look at is the phrase, God's elect, According to Peter, if you're a Christian, you are God's elect. Now, the thing about election is that it's, and I'm not talking about political election. That's already controversial enough. I'm talking about uh, spiritual gospel election. I would argue that gospel election is even more uh, controversial than, 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 than political election, okay? Some of you don't really know what election means. Here, here's what election essentially means. It means that before God created anything, he actually chose people beforehand. He chose beforehand who was going to know him. Okay? So before anything existed, before you existed, God knew who he was going to have a relationship with. God knew who he was going to choose. And he chose you before anything began. Now, when you think about that, that's a very controversial subject, right? Right? And it's controversial. It bothers us as humans on two levels. It bothers us at a cultural level, but it also bothers us at a personal level. So the first reason why it bothers us, it bothers us at a cultural level, right? Because being American, and Americans, what we believe is that everyone has equal rights, and everybody has equal opportunities. And so when we hear that before anything existed, God chose who was going to know him and who he was going to have a relationship with him, as Americans, that bothers us. Because that doesn't mean equal opportunity. That doesn't mean equal rights. Because if he was equal rights, he would have chosen everybody. So it bothers us at a, at a political, at a, at, a, at a cultural level because we are Westerners. We are Westerners, and that just does not sit well with us. But here's the reality. It doesn't just affect us at a cultural level, but it actually, if you have a pulse, it should actually bother you at the personal level too. You see, see election is meant to bother you. Election should, if you really understand it, it's meant to stir you up a little bit. It's meant to cause some chaos in you if you really understand what it's telling you. I think that if, if you really understand the doctrine of election, there should be a part of you that's bothered. There should be a part of you that's confused. There should be a part of you that's like, uh, how does this work? Why would God do this? That's what election should do in you. As a matter of fact, there's a very famous biblical scholar who passed away a few years back. His name's uh, A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink. And what he said concerning election in his commentary, he said, he's like, election is so controversial that the only reason why any human being would believe it is because it's in the Bible. In other words, if election wasn't in the Bible, no human being would make that up. Because it's so out of our nature to think that God would choose some people and not others. He's like, if he, it, Arthur Pink says, if it wasn't in the Bible, nobody would believe it. It's, it's proof that, that Christianity is made by God and not man-made. Because no man would, would, would decide that, that, that the gospel is God choosing you before you even existed and had nothing to do with it. So if the Bible didn't teach it, we wouldn't believe it. And I, and I think that's true. I think that's true. Because there are so many emotions that come up inside of us when we hear that God has chosen some and not others. It, it, like, it bothers us. Like, why would he do that? How dare he? But here's one of the things I do. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm, I'm coming, I, I read a, a passage or a verse or I'm studying a doctrine that makes me feel uncomfortable, 
And I think election is one of the ones that makes me feel the most uncomfortable, especially because I'm an evangelist. Like, I want to see people come to know the Lord. Like, like whenever I'm struggling with something emotionally, what I do is instead of turning my brain off and just staying in the emotion, I actually turn my brain on and go deeper into Scripture to see if that's what the Bible actually teaches. And the thing about election is that that's what the Bible actually teaches. So I have some verses here that I want to share with you because what I want to do is I want to take the emotion out of this. Not that the emotions don't matter, but if the Bible teaches it, then we have to believe it. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Praise be to to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Then he says, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So think about what this means. Think about what this means. When we think of the word holy and the word blameless, we think of I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. If I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be blameless, I have to do A, B, C, and D. But what the passage is saying is that God chose you beforehand. to He chose to see you as holy and blameless even though you didn't exist yet. Because the only reason why we're holy and blameless is because Jesus died in our place. And so God sees you through Jesus and in Jesus. And that's the only reason why he can see you holy and blameless. So before anything was created, God already had predestined you. And he chose to see you as holy and blameless because he's seeing you in Jesus. So it has nothing to do with us. Your holiness, your blameness, your, your being blameless, uh, you being elected has nothing to do with you. And that's what Paul wants you to see. That's what Paul makes very clear in Ephesians. And then he goes on. Look what he says in the next part. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now listen, listen to this. He says the, the qualifying word is love. So, so the reason why God, so here's the thing. The reason why predestination and election bother, bother us is because we feel that God is being unjust. We feel that God is not being merciful by not choosing everybody. What Paul says is that, is that instead of predestination making us doubt God's love, predestination is the proof of God's love. It shouldn't make you doubt God's love. It's the proof of God's love. So instead of looking at election and saying, oh, why did God choose that person, not this person? The question we should be asking is that why did God choose anybody? Right? So if you understand election, election shouldn't make you doubt God's love. It's actually the ultimate proof of God's love. And then he says that he has given us these things, freely given us these things, not because of us, but because we are in the one he loves. So the reason why God chose us, the reason why we are holy and blameless, the reason why God can love us is because he sees us in Jesus. If we were by ourselves, there's nothing to love. We bring nothing to the table. We're not holy or blameless, and there's nothing to love, but it's because he has chosen to see us in Jesus that God can love us. That's, that's crazy. That's what the Bible teaches, though. Look at this next passage. Look what it says in Romans 8. See, right before Romans 8, 29 is the the verse that we all love. For God works all things together for those he loves. We love that verse. But then he follows it up with this. He says, for those God foreknew, listen to this, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then he says, listen to this, this is the the next part is amazing. He says it again. And those he predestined, listen to this, he also called. 
Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In the Greek, every single one of those words is in the aorist tense. It's in the past tense. So think about what Paul's saying. Because God has chosen you before the creation of the world, when God sees you, he hasn't just predestined you already. Because the word glorified, that last thing, glorification doesn't happen until we're in heaven. And when God sees you, he sees you in such a way, because you are in Christ, he sees you as already in heaven, already glorified. Every single part of it is past tense. From predestined all the way to glorified. Every single word there is past tense. That if God has predestined you, he already sees you as glorified, because once he puts, sets you aside and places you in Christ, all these things are true of you all at the same time. So in other words, you and I were predestined, called, justified, and glorified before we existed. God chose you before you, before you existed. That's amazing. And then look at this passage in the last verse I'll look at. But again, I'm not, I'm, not bring, I'm not bringing these passages up to win an argument. I'm bringing these passages up to show you that the Bible says this all over. And, and you should see all the verses I didn't choose, okay? So this is Luke, and he's writing about Paul and Barnabas who are preaching the gospel in Acts 13 to a group of Gentiles. And look what it says in verse 48 of Acts 13. It says, when the, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Listen to this. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. So the only people that believed were the people that had already been appointed and chosen and predestined for eternal life. It's all who had been chosen. It's all who had been appointed. It's all who God had looked forward and said, I'm choosing this person, this person, and that person. Those are the people who believed. And so what you see all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is that election is God's way of doing things. I don't understand it. Listen, if I could do something about it, I probably would write it differently. But I can't do it differently. And that's why when emotions come in, the best thing we can do is go to Scripture and allow the Bible to speak for itself. Because then the emotions, it's not that they don't matter. It's just they're not as important anymore because what God says is what matters. Okay? And so this is a very, very, very controversial subject. I get it. I understand it. I'm not trying to minimize it. But this is what Scripture teaches. Election is a very humbling thing. And actually, I think that's part of the reason why we struggle with it so much. Because if election is true, and in light of Scripture it is, there is no doctrine that is more God-glorifying and human-humiliating than election. Because when someone tells you, hey, I chose you before you existed and you did nothing to get it, it's the ultimate slap in the face. It's the ultimate you did nothing to get this. And I think that's why we struggle with it, because we want to play a role in our salvation. We want to have a hand in our acceptance and our approval. We want to play a role in that. And so when God shows up and says, listen, you've done nothing, and actually I chose you before anything, and I was the only one here, and I had already chosen you, that's a very humbling thing. And so if you really understand predestination, if you really understand election, it should, on the one hand, reveal God's love for you, and on the other hand, it should humble you like no other doctrine. It should humble you like no other doctrine. Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, this is just so beautiful how he describes election and how election should be affecting us. He says, I know nothing, he says nothing again, that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. 
And now mind you, this guy's from the 1800s, so it's a little bit, you know, old English. He says, I have stretched my wings and eagle-like, I have soared toward the sun. Steady has, my, has, has been my eye and true my wing for a while. But when I come near it, only one thought possessed me. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved. And then he says, I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought. And from the dizzy elevation, down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why me? See, when you really understand election, that God chose anybody at all, and that you happen to be one of them if you're a Christian, your only response to that should be, why me? Why me? Not why not dumb or why this? Whether, no, no. The only response, if you really understand election, it should be, why me? Why me? Okay? So, the first identity that we are given, the first answer to that question, what is our identity, is that we are God's elect. The second answer to the question, what is our identity, is that not only are we God's elect, but according to Peter, we are also God's exiles. We are exiles. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an exile? In, 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 in the Greek, the, the word exile, it, it literally means to be a foreigner. It means to be a pilgrim on a pilgrimage. It means, it, what essentially it means in the Greek, it means to be a temporary resident. That's what the word exile means, to be a temporary resident. Now, here's what's interesting, though. The reason why I don't really like the word exile is because when we think of exiles, we can think of almost someone being punished, right? Like you commit a crime and then they exile you to some remote island, right? We think of exile as a punishment. I think that's why that word isn't really that, that strong. I think the better, the better word is, is that phrase, temporary residence. We are temporary residents. But here's what this means. There, there's, there's, I, want you, I want to unpack this a little bit because, again, I just don't think the English tells us everything we need to know. To be an exile, to be a temporary resident, to be a pilgrim, here's what it means. It means we are more than tourists, tourists, but we are less than citizens. Okay? So we are more than tourists, but we are less than citizens. So here's what this means. When, we're not here just for a week. Like, we're not like when you go to visit Europe and you're backpacking through Europe. We're not here for a little bit. Like, we're not here just for a week. So we're not tourists, right? But on the other hand, we're not citizens. Our passport says something else. It's like this middle area that we are. We are temporary residents, okay? And so what's interesting about that is, like, unlike most tourists, like when a tourist goes to Europe or a tourist goes to Latin America, they usually don't know the language. And so they don't really know the language. They don't really know the culture. They're just there to visit and sightsee. We are more than that because we know the language. We know the culture. And actually, we are called by God to know the language and to know the culture, okay? So we're not tourists, tourists but we are not citizens either. And as we go through this world as, as exiles on earth, one of, the, one of the best pictures of what it looks like to be a faithful exile is Jeremiah 29. Because in Jeremiah 29, we've looked at that verse here in our, in our, in our church. In Jeremiah 29, it, it, Jeremiah is writing to the exiles who are in Babylon, the Jews who are in captivity. Now remember, these are people, they're living in Babylon, okay? They're living in Babylon, and these Babylonians have kidnapped their children, they have raped their wives, they have stolen all their money, and now they are in captivity in Babylon. So you would think that what Jeremiah would write, because these people were so horrible to them, is hate them, separate from them, don't engage with them, totally remove yourself from them. 
But that's not what Jeremiah tells him. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says, I want you to seek the welfare of your city. I want you to plant roots. I want you to, uh, to, to plant gardens, and I want you to live there, and I want you to seek the welfare and the prosperity of the city in which I have placed you. That's crazy. People who have raped you, have kidnapped you, and have stolen from you, he says, when you're there, I don't want you to separate. I want you to serve. Wow. And that's what, this, that's what being in exile means. That's what it means. You see, because there, there, there's two extremes when it comes to being in exile. Like, there's the Christians who totally assimilate, and you can't even tell they're Christians, right? They act like their neighbors. They think like their neighbors. They hope for the same thing as their neighbors. Everything's exactly like their neighbors. And then you have the people, so one extreme is to assimilate, and the other extreme is to totally separate. So we either assimilate or we separate. And neither of those things are biblical. If you look at the balance that Jeremiah gives, Jeremiah doesn't say, hey, totally assimilate and act like the Babylonians. He doesn't say that. And but on the other hand, he doesn't say to totally separate either. He's, there's a balance where, where I, let me put it like this. We should have enough courage to stand out, but we should also have enough compassion to jump in. Okay? That's the balance we need in the gospel. I have to have enough courage to stand out and be different from my neighbor. But on the other hand, I have to have enough compassion to love and serve my neighbor. And that's the balance that the Bible wants us to have, if you look at what Jeremiah says. It's both at the same time. What's interesting about being in exile is that Christians, on the one hand, are extremely offensive. But on the other hand, Christians are extremely attractive. That's like the, 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 that's like the balance that we have to navigate. That on the one hand, we can be extremely offensive because of the message that we preach. But on the other hand, if we live the message correctly, we should also be extremely attractive. People should want to know more about it, right? That's why I think that the best evidence for the gospel is a transformed life. Because people in your life, people who knew you before you knew Jesus and people who know you after, they'll be like, listen, I can't stand what you believe, but something happened. You can't argue against a changed life, right? And so it's so interesting that, that we have to have enough courage to be offensive, but we have to have enough compassion to be attractive. We have to have that balance. It's a balanced thing. We just, so, so many things in Scripture, we want black or white. We want one extreme or the other. The Bible never gives us that option. We're supposed to be both things at once. We have to have enough courage to stand out, but we have to have enough compassion to jump in. And that's the balance that Scripture calls us to have. See, I believe that one of the greatest lies that Satan has told the world, not just non-Christians, but Christians, is that this world is all there is. See, because when you believe that this world is all there is, it changes your behavior. The way you plan is different. The way you fear is different. The way you hope is different. The way you behave is different. When you believe that this world is all there is, there's going to be shattered expectations. You know, I was talking to my father-in-law, uh, I think it was last weekend, and we were talking, yeah, it was last weekend, and he was talking about how after Christmas, he, he, he interacted with a few people here at church. And he's like, you know what was so interesting, Will? That the theme from every conversation I had was people who were disappointed in some way after the holidays. He's like, almost every conversation I had, someone shared some sort of disappointment from the holidays. Right? And I think that's so true. Like, so, so some of, everyone, everyone here came, went into the holidays with this expectation that the holidays were going to be the best holidays ever, and then there wasn't enough money, or maybe your kids weren't grateful, or maybe uh, someone uh, didn't show up to a party, or maybe there was, a, a, there was tension, or there was drama, or someone got sick, and everybody went in with all these hopes and left with all those hope dash. And we do it every year. 
We'll do it again in 12 months. But you know what that means? You know what that means? What it means is that we went into the holidays acting like this world was all there was. We went into the holidays acting like we were permanent residents instead of exiles. When you think this world is all there is, you go into the holidays thinking something's going to happen. That won't happen because the holidays can't give you what Jesus has already given you. That's the thing. I believe, I honestly believe, that many of the dashed expectations, many of the discontentment, much of the depression, much of the sadness, there's also chemical, for some, chemical reasons for some of that stuff, but I believe that much of the discontentment and much of the issues that our world struggles with is because people on earth are living like they're not exiles when they actually are exiles. We're living like we're permanent residents when what we really are is we are exiles. When you live like you're a permanent resident, you will expect things from this earth that this earth never promised you. And that's the issue. Okay? So, so, so that's the thing about being an exile, that, that once you understand you're an exile, you change the way you view creation. You change the way you view the world. You change your expectations because you understand that what you're looking for won't ultimately be given to you until you get to heaven. Look at this quote. I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. And this is a quote that's often quoted by Lewis. And this is one of my favorite books that he's, uh, that he's written. It's probably the most famous one, Mere Christianity. But here's what's interesting. People only usually quote a little part of it. I have a longer part because I need you to see just how he, he, he unpacks this whole concept of being an exile. Here's what he says. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires, listen to this, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So here's what we believe. That if there's a desire that God has given you, the reason why you have that desire is because there's actually something that can satisfy that desire. In other words, God doesn't give you a desire that cannot be satisfied. That's not, God wouldn't create you with a desire that can't be satisfied. That's what he's saying. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So he says, a baby feels hunger. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. Then he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, listen to this, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So if there's something in you that's desiring something that this world can't give you, what that should tell you is that you were made for another world. You're not made for this world. That's why you can't be satisfied. And then he says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I love this balance, because he can go, Lewis is just amazing at finding balance between two extremes. He says, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Then he finishes with this. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. So if we are exiles, we should not be surprised when the world does not meet our deepest desires because the world was never meant to meet our deepest desires. And instead of being disappointed, we should use that, 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 the, the, the heartache, the discontentment, to poison us back to the world that we really belong to, which is in heaven. 
And I love the balance he says there. Because again, just like we talked about the extremes with you can, be, you can assimilate or you can uh, uh, separate, just like we talked about those extremes, we can have, we'll be like, well, if the world doesn't satisfy me, I'm going to hate the world. No, he doesn't say to do that. He says, be thankful for what you're given. You know, be thankful for the gift. Just don't replace the gift giver with the gift. He, in another place, I don't know if it's in the same book, but another, in one of, the, one of his other books, he says, you know, whenever there's a sun ray, don't worship the sun ray. Follow the sun ray up to where the sun, to the sun. Be thankful for the sun ray, but don't worship it. Follow it up to where it comes from, which is God and heaven. Okay? So, if you go back to my two questions that I had, we've answered the first question. What is our identity? Well, according to Peter, now that you are a Christian, you are elect, but you are also an exile. You are an elect exile. You are a chosen foreigner. Okay? Oh, and just kind of a side note, if we really are exiles, and I'm not trying to make a political statement with this, but I, but I will say this, if we really are exiles, I think we should use that as a lens when we view the refugee situation, when we view immigrants, when we view people who are from outside of here. I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for or what to do politically, but I tell you that you should not consider those things without taking into account who you are in Jesus, which is you are an exile. And that should play a role. It should at least make you pray for those people at the, mid, at the least and probably more. Okay? So first question is what is our identity? So now that we know who we are, we are elect exiles, the second question I want to answer this morning, and this is where we, where we will spend the rest of our time, is why does it matter? Why does our identity matter? So in other words, how does my identity as an elect exile, how should that change my Tuesday afternoon? How should that change my marriage? How should that change how I go to work? How should that change the way I manage my money? See, because it's easy to talk about identity and stuff up here, but what I want to do is I want to take it from the 30,000-foot level, and I want to go down to the ground level and say, if these things are true, if you really are an exile, if you really are elect, how should that change this week, okay? And so that's what I want to do with the question, why does it matter? And I think, well, let me read the verse for and then a verse, and then I'll tell you what I think. Here's what it says in, in verse 2. In verse 2 of, of these two verses, it says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Okay? So, 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 so let, me, let, me, let me unpack this for you. If this is true, and I'll unpack what this means in a second. But if, if what he says in verse 2 is true, then what that means is that these two identities that I just gave you should transform us in two very practical ways. The first thing it should change, it should change our expectations. And the second thing it should change is it should change our appreciation. Okay? So if the two identities that we just looked at are true, it should transform us in two ways. It should change our expectations of the world, and it should change our appreciation of the gospel. Okay, so let's, let's unpack both of these because these are both very, very important. The first thing that should change if these identities are true is it should transform our expectations, our expectations. Why should it transform our expectations? Well, remember what I said earlier. If you go back to verse 1 of 1 Peter, look what it says in verse 1. He says, remember he says, he says, so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, comma, exiles. But in the, in the Greek, there is no comma. I don't even know if there are commas in the Greek, but whatever. But, but they're, they're the, the two words are together, right? And the way he writes it, he wants you to see the word elect 
modifying the word exile. He wants you to see those two words together. If you understand that, you're, that being elect is connected to you being an exile, it should change your expectations of the world that you're in. You see, because if you try to, do, if you try to be an exile without remembering that you are elect, you are not going to be a good exile. In other words, your ability to be an exile is directly connected to your remembering that you are elected. Why? Well, let me explain to you why. Because if God's election is true, that means that you are fully loved, fully accepted, fully embraced, fully applauded, fully adopted, fully brought in. You are chosen by God. You are God's favorite, according, that's what the word elect means. It could also mean to be God's favorite. If that's true, then that totally changes how you behave as an exile, right? Because then as I go through life as an exile, I'm not looking for my ultimate identity in my spouse. I'm not looking for my ultimate love in my children. I'm not looking for my ultimate significance in my job. I'm not feeling bad about my singleness. Why? Because if I'm already fully loved and I'm already fully accepted and I'm already fully approved of, and that's what election tells me, then I can now be an exile and do the exile thing correctly. See, the reason why we are so bad as exiles is because we have forgotten that we've been elected. And when you forget that you've been elected, then you go looking for in the world what you already have in the Lord. Okay? So the reason why this week you're going to try to get your boyfriend's approval, the reason why this week you're going to try to get your boss's approval, the reason why this week you're going to try to get your spouse's approval or your friend's approval or, or Facebook's approval, the reason why we're going to go looking for approval is because we forget that we've already been approved of. The reason why we're going to go looking for love this week is because we forget that we've already been loved. The reason why we're going to go looking for hope is because we forget that we already have hope. So in other words, your, your election is connected to your exile. You, you can't be a good exile unless you understand that you've been elected. Once I know that I have everything I need, I don't have to go looking for anything else. The people who don't need anything are the people who know they already have everything. And if election is true, then that's true of us. I don't need anything from the world because I've been given everything from God. Because he's elected me and he's given me everything that's true of Jesus is now true of me. That, that will just destroy any idol in your life. It'll change your anxiety. It'll change your worry. It'll change your, your future. It'll change your present. It just changes everything. It, it melts your heart. It like, it, it, and it's one of those instant changes too. Like, it's, like, it's, not, it's not like even like a progressive change. Like When you get it, it, it everything changes like immediately if you actually get it. If you actually get it. See, listen, if we have been elected, let me, let me, let me, let me bring this down even more lower to, to the ground level. If we have been elected, then unlike our neighbors, we don't need another vacation. We don't need another raise. We don't need more health. We don't need another Christmas. We don't need uh, uh, approval. We don't need a bigger house. We don't, need, we don't need any of those things. All those things are great things, but if election is true, I don't need any of those things anymore. Because no doctor, no book, no guru can give you what the gospel has already given you. And so if that's true, it should change the way you live. There's no reason to be angry anymore. There's no reason to be anxious anymore. There's no reason to be bitter anymore. Everything's different now if this is true. If this is true, everything changes. Everything changes. So, so, so our, 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 our exileness should be affected by our election. 
If every single one of us deep down, what, I, I know that this is how it is for me, and I know because we're all humans, we all, deep down, every single one of us has this deep, deep desire to be unconditionally loved. We have this deep, deep desire to be unconditionally, unconditionally accepted. You know, I don't know if you guys know this about my past, but I, I've never won anything. Like, as far as, like, luck stuff, like, like I remember when we were in second grade, they had, like, these uh, candy corn things, and they would be like, you got to guess how many candy corns are in the thing. I never got it, ever. I, I always lose everything. Like, whenever there's anything related to luck, I never was the guy that was chosen, ever. And I would always get so angry, like, dang it. Like, why, why does this dude get it? Like, I was always that bitter guy in the back because I never got chosen for any of that stuff, right? That's why I would never play the lotto, even though I wouldn't anyway for spiritual reasons. But I would never play the lotto because I know I wouldn't win. Because I don't win anything. It's just, that's just my luck. That's just how it is, right? But if, if, if election is true, then I won the most important lotto there is. So, so I have one. I have one. Because God looked into the future and he chose me. I don't care if I ever get chosen for anything. It doesn't matter. Because I was already chosen. And that's how you should feel if you understand this. That y- your deepest desire has already been given. You know, one of the reasons why singleness is so difficult nowadays is because we're trying to look for in people what we already have in Jesus. That's why it's so difficult. Because what our culture has done, and I've read on this, what our culture has done is taken romantic relationships, and because they don't believe God exists, they have put romantic relationships in that place. And so we're trying to find in a spouse what should only be given to us in our spiritual spouse, which is Jesus. So we should be looking for a spouse. We're just looking for at the wrong spouse, Right? If election is true, then you won the greatest, your name has been picked out of the lot. You won the lot because there's, and, and forget about the 500 million in the Powerball. This is so much infinitely greater than that if election is true, okay? So the first thing that, that should transform if you understand this doctrine, it should change your expectations. It should radically change your expectations. So, so and here's the thing, it should change your expectations not in that your expectations are lower, but it should actually change your expectations because now they're higher. So in other words, I can't be satisfied with my spouse ultimately because I have a higher spouse, right? I, I, can, I can now live as an exile, not because I've lowered my expectations, but because my expectations are so high that only heaven can actually satisfy me. So I'm not going to settle for something smaller than heaven because I have everything I need in heaven. Nothing else will satisfy me because my expectations are not too low, they're too high now, Okay? So the first thing that should change if you understand election is it should change your expectations. But listen, the second thing that should transform, and the second thing that should change if if election is true, it should also change your appreciation. It should also change your appreciation. Well, where do I get that? Well, if you go back to verse 2, look what he says in verse 2. This is crazy. He starts talking to us about the salvation we've been given, and if you look at it, it has nothing to do with us because he goes from those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So when you look at that first part of verse 2, what you see is that salvation has nothing to do with you or me. We do nothing. So if salvation, if redemption is, 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 is something to be achieved, we do nothing to achieve it. All we do is receive it because the Father plans it, the Son pays for it, and then the Holy Spirit perfects it in us. The Father plans it, the Son pays for it, and the Holy Spirit perfects it. In other words, it has nothing to do with you or me. You see, when you understand that salvation has nothing to do with you, the only thing that should be produced in you is a deeper appreciation for what was done. See, because if you think you have a hand in you being made right with God, your appreciation goes down. When you understand that you had no hand in it and that he did all of it, your appreciation goes up because he did all of it in your place. 
He showed up and did what we could not do to a degree that we never would have been able to do it. The Father plans it, the Son pays for it, the Holy Spirit perfects it in us. That's such an incredible thing. So your appreciation should go through the roof if you really understand the gospel. It should be incredible appreciation. I don't care what your holidays were like. I don't care what you went through. Your appreciation should be at an ultimate, at an all-time high, regardless of your circumstances, because you did nothing to get your salvation. You did nothing to be elected. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit did the whole work, and they continue to do the work. You're not even the one doing it now. They're still doing it now. That's amazing. That's so amazing. That's why, that's why this changes everything because your appreciation will always stay at the same level regardless of if there's nothing to be thankful for in your life. Because if this is true, you have everything to be thankful for because everything has already been given to you. But here's what's, here's what's uh, this is, the, I was reading this passage. I was studying 1 Peter. I'm just, I just can't wait to go through this letter because there's so much good stuff in here. And if you go to 1 Peter uh, later on, look what he says in verse 18 of chapter one. Now, 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 before I read it, well, no, no, let me read it, and then I'll explain it. Here's what he says. I'm just so pumped about this. Here's what it says. In verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Okay? Then he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he, Jesus, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So listen to this. You and I, we're not the only people who were elected. We always, when we talk about election, we always talk about God choosing us. But according to 1 Peter 9, 18 through 20, God also chose Jesus before the foundations of the world. So here's what this means. Here's what this means. When God looked to the future and chose sinners, he knew that in order to choose sinners, he was also going to have to choose a savior. Because he, if we got into God's presence, we would have been destroyed by him. We, we couldn't, they, so God didn't just choose us to say, hey, I forgive you. No, no, no. There needed to be a payment for our sin. If we were going to be rescued, there needed to be a rescuer. And God in his sovereignty, God in his foreknowledge, he not only chose a, to, uh, people to be rescued, but as a result, he chose a rescuer, and that rescuer is Jesus. So God loves you so much that not only did he choose you before you were created, he, choose, he chose to send his son to die for you before we even existed. He sent a solution to our problem before we even knew we had a problem. That's crazy. So it's not just our election that's mind-blowing, but even more mind-blowing is that God chose from the the foundation. Before he created us, he knew we would sin. He knew we would turn our back on him. He knew we wouldn't worship him. In spite of that, he chose us. And in spite of that, he chose his son to die for sinners. In order to elect sinners, you also have to elect a savior because only a savior can fix what what our problem was. And so Jesus came to do that. Jesus came to do that. So whenever you think of election, the reason why the only, the only response you should have is appreciation. The reason why the only response you should have is you're just blown, it's blown away humility and brokenness is because you understand that for, in order for God to elect you, he also had to elect a savior. So God knew that in order to bring us in, he would have to kick his son out. He chose that. And so when you look at election, we think, oh, well, you think of God being this, this removed, just a horrible person who, who's objective and doesn't care about us. But if you understand that in order for him to choose, chose us, choose, choose us, he had to choose a savior, and that savior was his son. Listen, you know God is God because I wouldn't give up my kids for any of you. I wouldn't. I love my girls too much. I wouldn't give up my, my child for you. 
But that's what makes God God, that he gave up his kid for you. That's crazy. So election, like I said, election shouldn't make us doubt God's love. Election is the ultimate proof of God's love. It's the ultimate proof of God's love. And then if you go back to uh, uh, the passage we were looking at, verses 1 and 2, look what he says here, uh, verse, verse 2. Look what it says in verse 2. He says, who, has, who, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, the word foreknowledge seems very objective to us. It seems very removed. But actually, in the Greek, the word foreknowledge, it doesn't mean to just look forward in an objective way. It means to look forward and to know someone in a fatherly way. It's a compassionate knowledge. And so God, he knew by looking forward and seeing us as his children when we didn't deserve it, he was going to have to make his child a bastard. He was going to have to make his child uh, a homeless. He was going to have to kick his child out. He was going to have to reject him in order to embrace us. It was his fatherly knowledge. It was his fatherly love. It was his fatherly care that made him choose you and me. And so what we have in Jesus is we have the ultimate exile, but we also have the ultimate elect one. He's the ultimate exile because when you look at the Old Testament, one of the pictures of exile in the Old Testament is Abraham. We're told that Abraham was asked to leave his father, to ask to leave his land. Well, well, Abraham, he left a, a worldly land, a, a, an earthly land, but Jesus, the ultimate Abraham, he left heaven. It's way harder to leave heaven than it is to leave earth, some, some country on earth. You see, Abraham, he leaves his sinful, idolatrous father. Jesus left his perfect heavenly father for you and for me. And then when he came down to earth, he lived the ultimate life of an exile. He was born in a manger. He never had a house. There's a point where people are like, hey, where do you, where, do you have a house? Where, where do you live in? I don't even have a place to lay my head, he says. He, he, he lived the life of an exile his whole life. And then he gets to the end of his life, and we're told in the Bible that he's exiled, he's, he's crucified outside of the city. So even in his death, he was an exile. He wasn't in the city. He was outside the city. Then he dies. He doesn't even have a grave to call his own, so he has to borrow someone else's grave. He's the ultimate exile. But not only is he the ultimate exile, he's also the ultimate elect one. He's also the ultimate chosen one. The ultimate chosen one went to the cross, and at the cross, the chosen one became the unchosen one so that we might be chosen. At the cross, the ultimate insider, Jesus, became the ultimate outsider so that we might be brought in. He went to the cross for you and for me to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And because he did it, because he's the ultimate elect one, because he's the ultimate exile, we now, through his power, can be elect exiles because of what he did for you and for me. He did that for you and for me. We, 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 we need to get to the bottom of that, guys. We need to let that transform you. You need to sit in that. You need to swim in that. You need to feast on that. You need to meditate on that. Meditate on that. There's nothing else for you to do. Just meditate on that. And I promise you it'll change you. I promise. It's all you need. It's all you need. And then look, at, look, look how Peter ends. And this is a throwaway verse if you're not paying attention. But he says, grace and peace be yours. It's kind of a prayer he finishes with. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The word abundance there means the grace and peace in, be multiplied, to be multiplied. Now, why does Peter end with grace and peace? Listen, the reason why this is so important and the reason why we can't lose sight of this is because even though that seems just like a, a, a throwaway phrase, this is one of the first times, and Paul does it too, but this is one of the first times where the word grace and the word peace are together. So Peter takes a predominantly New Testament concept, grace, and a predominantly Old Testament concept, peace, and he puts them together. 
You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God's promising shalom, shalom, shalom. And remember what we said a couple weeks ago. Shalom isn't just the absence of conflict. Shalom is this holistic peace. It's this, it's this holistic well-being. It's, it's well-being in every area of your life. That's what shalom means, right? It's prosperity in every area of your life. Not financial prosperity, but spiritual prosperity. That's what shalom means. For the first time, or one of the times, because Paul does it too, but they take this very predominantly New Testament concept and this predominantly Old Testament concept, and he brings them together and he says, listen, if you truly, truly want peace and shalom, then you need grace. The only place you're ever going to find true peace is in God's grace. Here's, here's what's beautiful about this. If you look at grace and peace, they correspond to the two, grace and peace both correspond to the two identities we've been looking at. God's grace is seen in his election, and God's peace is experienced as, as we are exiles here on earth. And so here's what I, would want, I want you to, I want to end with and conclude with. As you go through life, as you go through life this week, I'm not sure what you're going home to. I'm not sure. Whether it's a sickness or whether it's marital struggles or whether it's singleness or whether it's financial issues. I don't, I don't know what you're going home to. But here's what I will tell you. To the degree that you meditate on, to the degree that you feast on, to the degree that you appreciate God's grace and his election, to that same degree you will experience God's peace as an exile. Amen? Let's pray.